1: Hi-Fi Nation from Slate. Before we start today, I want to thank Allison O'Holloran, Christine Howlett, Scott Evoy, and James Cropcho, the most generous Patreon supporters whose monthly donations keep the show going. I want to thank the rest of our generous Patreon supporters in the end credits, but also thanks today to Slate Plus listener Andrew Wright from Portage, Michigan, who listed Hi-Fi Nation as one of his favorite Slate shows. Thanks for listening, Andrew.
2: Hello, Thaya speaking.
1: Dr. Ashman.
2: Hi, is that Professor Lamb?
1: Thaya Ashman is a doctor in New Zealand.
2: I work in family medicine. I'm a mother of three children, and I am a wife of a church minister.
1: As I'm recording this, it's exactly two weeks after the Christchurch mosque shootings, when a 28-year-old Australian white supremacist shot and killed 50 worshipping Muslims and injured an additional 50 over the course of a 20-minute rampage.
2: So the shooting had taken place on Friday afternoon, and a journalist had been taken home from Linwood Mosque by a teenage boy who hadn't actually been at the mosque during the time of the shooting, but he said, come back with me, Um, I'll take you back to our house. And towards the end of the interview, he said she is not going out again. She thinks her headscarf makes her into a target. And my heart went out to her. I thought, this lady feels a target in her own country. She does not feel safe on her own streets. And her choice to wear her headscarf, she doesn't have that choice. So I thought, what can we do to make her feel safer?
1: Dr. Ashman thought, what if she could get everyone else in New Zealand to wear a headscarf? at least on the day marking one week after the shooting, and maybe even after that.
2: So I mentioned it to my husband, and he said, oh, that's such a simple idea. It's a really good idea. And then I phoned um, a representative from the Islamic Women's Council of New Zealand and spoke to her, and she went very, very quiet. She was actually, she had flown down from Auckland to Christchurch to go and support the families who were directly affected. So she was very quiet, and then she very quietly said to me, oh my gosh, this is so
1: thoughtful. They called it Headscarf for Harmony. And to say it had an effect in New Zealand is an understatement. Women and men across the country wore a headscarf to show solidarity with the Muslim community in New Zealand. And when I read this story, it made me realize that I've actually told it before, to very different effect two years ago. In the first season of this show, long before it was picked up here at Slate. Well, on today's show, I'm going to revisit and update that story for you. In light of all that has happened in the past two weeks, in the past two years, in Christian-Muslim relations in the U.S., in Europe, Australia, and New Zealand, I'm bringing you the story of the time that a woman tried to do the same thing in the U.S. that Dr. Ashman did in New Zealand. Only here in the States, she got a very different reaction. Here's an updated version of season one's Name of God. I'll see you again at the other end.
3: I'm Carly Bothman. In
1: 2015, Carly Bothman was a junior at Wheaton College. Wheaton College is an evangelical Christian college in Wheaton, Illinois.
3: I led a Syrian refugee camp simulation And the idea was to be in solidarity or like a demonstration of solidarity with Syrian refugees. The idea of Dr. Hawkins was to camp out in the Quad.
1: Dr. Hawkins was one of her professors
4: at Wheaton. My name is Larisha Hawkins.
3: And it was in late November, so it was snowing, but we all slept in tents outside. She stayed out with us that night until like 10 o'clock. It was just so interesting because lots of professors on campus saw and said like we really like that event. What else are you going to do? So after that, we were trying to think of more events or like demonstrations like that.
4: Carly had an idea. It was the week before finals. A student wanted to, you know, wear the hijab on the airplane home. And wanted to call other college students to do this. And she didn't want it just to be a Wheaton thing, I think, which was wise. She didn't want it to be just a Christian thing. She wanted it to be a national movement of college women wearing hijabs home. It was supposed to
3: be kind of like the other event, you know, just like, I mean, it's the Syrian refugee crisis. I waited a bit, but in the end, I got a few other students.
4: At that point, I had made a commitment. I said, I will wear it as well. For me, it was just to model for students at Wheaton. I think that part of, again, my professional slash pedagogical and personal commitments just coalesced at that moment. It just struck me that it was the Christian season of Advent. And just like during Lent, we put on or take off things as a way of, of fasting, if you will, in preparation for Easter. I thought of me wearing the hijab as an act of Advent devotion. So I decided to wear the hijab throughout Advent.
1: That was the plan. Young women wearing hijabs in public to strike up conversations with people calling attention to the Syrian refugee crisis. Larisha had many conversations with the local council on American-Islamic relations to make sure this wasn't some kind of insulting gesture to Muslims. It wasn't. So the students did it. Carly and her fellow students got featured in the Chicago Tribune. There were pictures of the college women in hijabs. There was an explanation of the purpose.
4: And so uh, that was the commitment, and then I put a, you know something out on Facebook that evening inviting my friends into a narrative of embodied solidarity. And I said, as Pope Francis said last week, we worship the same God, uh, Muslims and Christians. You know, I don't love my Muslim sister and brother because they're American. I love them because they are imbued with human dignity. And, And that was the impetus, to walk in solidarity in a way that I think Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. I had this calculus, like, on Facebook, the posts of mine that got the most attention was perhaps 10% of my Facebook, right? Maybe 150 people will see this even, and maybe they'll like it, maybe not. If I had any idea the post would have gone viral, or if anyone would have really seen it beyond my handful of Facebook friends, I would have taken a better selfie.
5: I'm Dr. Michael Mangus for 27 years. I was a professor of psychology at Wheaton College. I had been teaching psychology of religion for a few years. And in that class, we study many different prayer modalities, including other religions, and in particular, how using our bodies in prayer affects our experience of prayer and how it might, might communicate intent to God and those kinds of things. And one of the ways we did that was to pray using the body postures and a modified version of uh, Islamic prayer, putting your forehead and nose on the ground and then going through a certain sequence of things, including saying, God is great. When Larisha first posted her Facebook post, I made a comment lower down and I said, let me know if you get any grief at work because I'll be teaching Islamic prayers in the spring. And so I was contacted by the provost When you work at Wheaton, you sign a statement of faith. uh, So you say that you won't teach or promote doctrine that is not consistent with that statement of faith.
1: That statement of faith, which you can find online, contains pretty standard evangelical doctrines about God revealing himself through Jesus. That Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. That the Bible is inerrant. That all who believe in Jesus are saved, and those who do not will have eternal damnation and that Jesus will return to earth in the end of times and so forth.
5: The reality is that there are things that are taboo. There are things that you make your mind up ahead of time emotionally, and then you go to the Bible to find a way to support it. So I think all of us are, we're always afraid that uh, we might step on one of those landmines where things could, could go haywire. And so I was contacted by the provost. He said, if you could write a paragraph saying, all I meant was, we study, you know, these prayers and and the body posture and everything. Then that we'd be fine. We'd be able to give that to anyone who thinks that Wheaton has become some liberal place that teaches Islam. And also in that same email, he said, Larisha Hawkins said something equally innocuous, but it's creating a big fuss.
4: The next day, I was teaching. It was the last day of classes. I taught two classes that day. I had a three-hour thesis defense that afternoon, and I was babysitting for a friend that night. So by the time I got to work, the Christian Post was first. And Christian Post, I didn't see their email until later, but they ran with a story because I didn't get back to them in time. In between classes, I had a call from NBC in New York who wanted to interview me. And I'm like, I don't have time. Again, I was like literally occupied from 10 a.m. until 5 p.m. And then, oh yeah, we were changing computer platforms. So I spent after the thesis defense like two hours in the computer. So it was just like one of those weird days. I didn't even eat lunch that day. And that's how it happened. And so by the next day, I kind of had to try to think, what am I going to do? Again, this is not about attention for Larisha, so I think I was still denying interviews. And then I think Glenbeck's site, The Blaze, did a piece. And then it was like a friend of mine called me and was like, um, have you heard from the admin? I was like, no.
5: A few days later, the word came out that Larisha had been suspended.
4: I heard from the college on December 15th, which was the the first day of finals. That day, I was placed on administrative leave, effective immediately.
3: I was really confused. There wasn't much negative feedback for the students, and definitely not from Wheaton. People on administration say, like, no, this is a a good movement. But that wasn't even linked to them, to the issue of Dr. Hawkins, because we haven't said anything about the relationship between Christianity and Islam.
1: A statement from Wheaton College, December 16, 2015. Contrary to some media reports, Dr. Hawkins's administrative leave resulted from theological statements that seemed inconsistent with Wheaton College's doctrinal convictions and is in no way related to her race, gender, or commitment to wear a hijab during Advent. Further down, Her recently expressed views, including that Muslims and Christians worship the same God, appear to be in conflict with the college's statement of faith.
3: I talked to a number of professors, and one told me, yeah, I mean, my daughter asked me the other day, oh, is Allah the word for God? And I said, yeah, um, yeah, Allah means God. And he said, I mean, I'm not a theologian. How do you get into that? I'm an anthropologist, you know, like, it it means God, it's, yeah, there's some, but there are some differences between Islam and Christianity.
5: My reaction to the whole situation was that it should have caused everyone to stop and say, this is really important, this whole question of same God, and how we relate to people of other faiths that are our neighbors, this is really important. Let's all stop and have a big conversation about this because we we can't just get on this emotional roller coaster based on people's reactions to evangelical taboos. But instead, the reactions of the administration were swift and severe.
4: It obviously became the fight of my life, being in shock personally, the difficult kind of back and forth and being separated from campus from my students. It just became about defending myself and also defending what i think is an important thing which is academic freedom even in a sectarian university context
1: on january 4th 2016 provost stanton jones delivered to the president of wheaton a notice of recommendation to initiate termination proceedings regarding Larisha Hawkins. Larisha Hawkins was the first tenured African-American professor at Wheaton College. It was the statement that Christians and Muslims worship the same God that led to the termination proceedings against Larisha. Teaching Islamic prayer positions, wearing an hijab, calling for the U.S. to accept Muslim refugees, all were consistent with the statement of faith and educational mission of Wheaton. All of it was consistent with evangelical Christianity. But saying that the God of Christianity was the God of Islam, that was unacceptable. I'm pretty ignorant about religion, so I sought the help of some theologians and religious scholars to help me understand the broader religious and social context in place here.
7: My name's Paul Griffiths. I teach Catholic theology at Duke Divinity School. Many Christians, evangelical, Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox as well, hear statements like, Muslims and Christians worship the same God, to mean Islam and Christianity are compatible. Now, of course, the two statements actually don't mean the same thing, but they're often heard in that way. And if heard in that second sense, deep worries surface because there is a long and difficult history between Christians and Muslims, and there is a long history of Christians feeling under threat by Islam, sometimes realistically, sometimes not. Any claim as to compatibility, that there's no significant difference here, creates deep uneasiness. So I think that's part of the explanation.
1: Professor Michael Mangus.
5: When Larisha said to her Muslim brothers and sisters, "We worship the same God," she was compromising this really emotionally solid definition of what it is to be an evangelical Christian. I remember as a kid thinking there must be some kind of quiz when you get to heaven to ask you theological questions. If you gave the right answers, then you got into heaven.
1: This evangelical idea that eternal salvation is open only to those with correct theological beliefs, and then hearing that Christianity and Islam might be compatible. Maybe the issue is sensitive because these together open up the possibility that there's a path to salvation for Muslims. That could very well be contrary to evangelical doctrine. But there are a lot of steps to get to that conclusion. They aren't steps every Christian takes and certainly not the steps Larisha took, who is as devout a Christian as I've met. Here is where I think the issue of race in America does come in. Larisha Hawkins comes from a black Christian church. The black church is actually what she studies academically.
0: In a funny way, the one group of Americans that understands uh, Islam in America is precisely African Americans. At least a quarter of American Muslims are African Americans. My name is Amir Hussein. I'm a professor of Theological Studies at Loyola Marymount University.
1: Amir Hussein is a scholar of Muslim theology, of Islam in America, and is a Muslim himself.
0: Almost every African American that I know has some connection to Islam. They've got an aunt, a brother, a sister, an uncle, someone in their family, a nephew, you know, who converted, who became a Muslim. And so I think there's that sense of familiarity. You look at the case of, let's say, Malcolm X, him converting to Islam in the 40s and Andre Carson you know, the second Muslim to Congress, converted to Islam, both coming from Christian backgrounds. You know, he saw gangs in his hometown who who happened to be Christians. So the kids in the gang were not Muslim kids. And so for him, the shift to Islam was as much a statement about, I don't want to go down that path of criminality. You know, Malcolm X very famously joked that, you know, when he was a Christian, he was a criminal. When he converted to Islam, he left that past behind. The conversion to Islam often meant a political, a civil rights kind of statement, not just a religious conversion.
1: In the African-American community, Islam doesn't stoke the kind of fear and uneasiness that it does in the white Christian community, where contact with Islam is more limited. To the contrary, Islam is connected with black liberation and civil rights, something that is deep in the black Christian church as well. And far from being connected to violence, conversion to Islam represents wearing suits and ties, historical scholarship, community building, and having a more structured and disciplined life. It has, for a long time, meant to move away from violence. And it's not because African American Islam is a unique sect of Islam.
0: Almost all of the African-American Muslims I know are not members of the Nation of Islam. They're Sunni Muslims. So I think there's sometimes there's still that kind of stereotype that you think that, you know, uh, Minister Farrakhan, who is the head of the Nation of Islam, somehow represents the million and a half African-American Muslims. Well, he doesn't. He represents about 30,000 members of the Nation of Islam, which is still there. But the vast majority of African-Americans are are Sunni Muslims.
1: There's a tradition within African-American communities of interactions between Christians and Muslims. It explains how the African-American community might see the relationship between Islam and Christianity differently from the white community. Surprisingly, this view of Islam is actually historically longer lived than the view of Christianity and Islam as incompatible religions. Professor Paul Griffiths. Christians have
7: responded to Islam from the beginning of Islam. The earliest detailed discussion ...of Islam by a Christian theologian comes from the 7th century, only about three decades after Muhammad. And that's by John of Damascus. And he categorizes Islam as a Christian heresy. That is to say it's a form of Christianity that's got some fundamental things wrong. Uh, And that way of thinking about Islam went on for a long time. I would say it was the dominant position among Christians about Islam for 800 years. It's only much later, really beginning in the 14th and 15th century that Christians begin to talk of Islam as a different religion. And that's partly because the evolution in the idea of what a religion was was going on at the same time. And you don't get that position as standard, really, until the 15th century.
1: Conversely, Muslims see Islam as the continuation of the Jewish and Christian traditions. Professor Amir Hussein.
0: Islam is not a new religion that comes into the world with Muhammad in the 7th century in Arabia. This is the religion that comes with Adam, the first created human being. The Quran says that the first created human being, Adam, is the first prophet. And it surprises again people sometimes to think that the prophet that's mentioned most by name in the Quran is Moses. The prophet that's mentioned second most by name in the Quran is Jesus. And so you have this history the islamic tradition says that abraham is given a text it says that david is given a text the psalms it says that moses is given a text you know the torah it says that jesus is given a text the gospel the the quran uses the word in which really is you know evangelion you know the the gospel and that muhammad is given a text the quran
1: so given that there's a long christian tradition emphasizing that Christians and Muslims worship the same God, and along Muslim tradition, emphasizing the same thing, how do we begin to think about this question? You begin with the names of God, coming up on HiFi Nation. So this question about whether... Christians and Muslims worship the same God, or whether two religions worship the same God. Do you think of this as a question that someone's personal faith alone can answer for a particular individual?
7: Absolutely not. No. Uh, It's a relatively technical question, either in philosophy strictly or in philosophical theology. And to think about it well, you need some technical distinctions and so forth. And most faithful Muslims and faithful Christians have no access to or interest in those distinctions.
1: Is it a linguistic question
7: Part of it's linguistic and part of it's strictly conceptual. That is to say, one way to understand it is to think of it as a question about reference. What does the term, let's say, Allah, as used by Muslims, or the term God or the Lord, as used by Christians, what do those terms refer to? That's one way to think about it. And those who want to say that they don't refer to the same thing, are taking the two different gods line and those who think that they do or could refer to the same thing aren't.
1: Finally, we turn to the philosophy of language. How can any two people talk about the same thing? I'm sitting in a room and you put something in front of me, a large vase. You ask me to describe it and I describe it as the tallest red item in the room. Now I leave the room and my friend walks in She's asked to describe the same item. And she describes it as the largest glass item in the room. These are different descriptions we give, but we're both talking about the same item. Our differing descriptions end up referring to the same thing. One way to ask the question, do Christians and Muslims worship the same God, is to ask the question, Are Christians and Muslims referring to the same thing or different things with the descriptions they give of their gods? This technical question, as Paul Griffiths puts it, is not necessarily a religious question. The same question arises for just about anything. When two people give different descriptions of something, how do we figure out whether they're talking about different things or just describing the same thing differently? This brings us to a very pedantic-sounding question that actually animated the best philosophical minds in the 20th century. Is there a difference between naming words and describing words? Imagine that instead of asking me to describe the large vase, you just asked me to name it. Now, I'm not going to use any words like tall or red or glass for the vase, I'm just going to make up some word, Vicky. And that word, Vicky, now refers directly to the vase, without me having to describe it at all. Naming words have this really important feature. They allow two people to talk about the same thing, no matter how differently they might describe it. If both my friend and I were in the same room and had a really good look at Vicky, and I thought, Vicky had some water in it, while my friend thought it was empty, we might describe what we saw differently. The red vase with water in it, the red vase without water in it. Instead of becoming confused about whether we were talking about the same vase or different vases, we can just say, I thought Vicky had some water in it. And my friend says, Vicky was empty. We might even disagree about whether it was a vase. But thanks to the name, we don't have to agree on any descriptions to talk about the same thing. Now back to the issue of whether Christians and Muslims worship the same God. That might actually depend on whether the words for God are naming words or describing words.
7: Christians use, because of Scripture and because of Christian relations to the people of Israel, to the Jews, tend to use two terms in English. One is God, the other is the Lord. And so Scripture is full of the locution, the Lord God. Rightly speaking, Lord is an English rendering of a proper name. It's the name that's given in the book of Exodus, chapter 3, Exodus 3.21, where Moses asks the God who is instructing Moses to do various things, like lead the people out of slavery and so forth, asks that God, So, who are you? What are you called? What's your name? I need to know that so I can go and tell the people who it is that's been talking to me. This God who's addressing Moses then gives a name. In Hebrew, it's four letters YHWH. And then the question of how to say that name gets tricky Yahweh jehovah in the early english translations of what christians call the old testament those four letters got rendered as lord in uppercase so that's the name and god is a generic category term there are lots of gods and there's just one lord and the lord is the proper name of the god of abraham and moses and jesus etc so that's the christian story now most christians these days merge these things, and they think of God as a proper name or something like that, which is confused, but that's how it goes.
1: In the Christian and Jewish texts, the name for God is YHWH. This is not a name that is picked up in the Muslim tradition. In fact, most of the Christian tradition doesn't pick up the name either. Even the translation word, Lord, in English, is a describing word, not a name. It describes someone who has authority or power over you. The word we translate as God in English is not a name in Hebrew. What was the Hebrew term for this generic category term for God? So
7: that Hebrew word is Elohim, and that's actually a plural word, so it actually means gods. So whenever you read in your English version of the Old Testament, God, you're reading this word Elohim. And the Old Testament is clear, there are loads of those. They're not very interesting, and they're certainly nothing like the four-lettered one, the Tetragrammaton, the Lord, but there are lots of them.
0: Allah is simply the Arabic word for God. It's in fact the word that Arabic-speaking Christians use for God. This is exactly the parallel cognate in Hebrew that Hebrew and Arabic are Semitic languages. so Elo, Elohim, you know which is actually an interesting plural. That's exactly the same etymological root in Hebrew that Allah is. In Arabic, literally, all is the definite article, la, God, literally the God. So when Muslims say there's no God, but the God, that's what they're saying, that Allah for Muslims isn't the proper name of God.
1: Neither in the Judeo-Christian tradition or the Islamic tradition is the word that we translate as God a proper name. It's a describing term, like your English word deity or the plural, deities, and it is a very inclusive term. It applies to false gods, gods of other religions, gods in fictional stories. Things get more interesting when you use the definite article, the god, or the one and only god. That's still using a describing term, like saying the one and only doctor. It's describing the one thing you're talking about as a god and as being alone in having that trait. This is consistent with other ways of talking about God.
0: There's a verse in the Quran that says, to God belong the most beautiful names, so call upon God by them. And the Muslim tradition comes up with 99 names. So you may be familiar with this phrase, the 99 names of God, you know, the idea that God is the merciful, the compassionate, the just, the ruler.
1: Technically speaking, these 99 names are not names. They are describing words. You have to be a ruler to be the ruler. You have to be merciful to be the merciful. But all of them can refer to the one Muslim God because all of these descriptions are compatible. If God is a naming word, then just like any other naming word, two people can be in complete disagreement over how to describe something, but still use the word God to talk about the same thing. If God is a describing word, then it matters what those descriptions are. Are they really simple, like the description, the one and only deity? Or are they complex, like the one and only deity who was merciful and created the world? Most importantly, the descriptions that two different religions give of their one and only God must be compatible.
0: The basic Christian teaching that you know God loves us so much that God takes on human form comes to earth in the person of Jesus, who is both God and human. For Christians, I would almost argue that that's really the foundational story as much as the death and resurrection story there. That's a difficult story for Jews. That's a difficult story for Muslims. For Muslims, Jesus is an important human prophet, but a human. To this notion for Christians of Jesus being the Savior. In this case, Muslims and Jews are more like each other. Both for Muslims and Jews, this notion of vicarious atonement doesn't work. Absolutely, we sin. Absolutely, we make mistakes, both against God, against other people. But we need to get right with God. We need to do that. There isn't someone else that can do it for us. I think one of the, the great gifts of the Christian tradition, I think, which is why it's the largest religious tradition in the world, is this idea that it's not up to you, it's up to God, which is a lovely idea, except that theologically it doesn't work for Muslims. It doesn't work for Jews, that you know, you can't atone for my sins. You know, Jesus can't atone for my sins. I have to atone for my sins.
1: The disagreement over the divinity of Jesus and the disagreement over salvation They form the basis for two arguments that Muslims and Christians do not worship the same God. To be a Christian is to describe God as Jesus. Jesus is God. For Muslims, and for Jews as well, there is no human incarnation of God. Jesus is human, not divine, and so Jesus is not God. Christians worship Jesus. Muslims do not, and so they believe in different gods. Another argument concerns salvation. The path to salvation for Christians is to accept Jesus as the incarnation of God, and for Muslims it is not. According to this view, God is the description of the highest deity to which we owe our salvation. Since salvation comes from Jesus in one religion, and not Jesus in another, it follows that Christians and Muslims do not worship the same God. The biggest issues with these arguments come from philosophy and from theology. First, theology.
7: It is Catholic doctrine that Jews and Christians worship the same God. And yet, the ways in which Jews identify the Lord and ways in which Christians do are as different as the differences between Christians and Muslims. So if we can have it in that case, why can't we have it in this case?
0: I don't think Christians want to say that the God that Christians worship is a different God than the God that Jews worship, precisely because Jesus is Jewish. His first followers are Jewish.
7: Once we allow that Jesus was a Jew, which is a fairly uncontroversial thing to allow. And once we build in what the New Testament has to say about what Jesus seems to have said and thought about his Judaism and the Judaism of his time, you get immediately the conclusion that the Lord that Jesus, the Incarnate One, both is and worshipped is the same one that Jews worship, because that's more or less explicit in the New Testament.
1: Christians want to say that a devout Jew can worship God, even though a Jew does not accept that Jesus is the flesh incarnation of God. That means that someone can believe in your God without accepting the same descriptions as you about God, even if those descriptions are fundamental to God in your religion. And this is true of everything, not just religion.
7: In ordinary life, we often have deep disagreements about the predicates we might want to apply to somebody or something, and yet we turn out to be talking about the same actual thing.
1: Just like in Vicky and the Vase. As another religious example, Christians disagree about whether God has a gender. If one Christian thinks God must be male, and another thinks God must be genderless, they aren't believing in different gods. They're disagreeing about descriptions of God even though both might think that having a gender is fundamental to God. This kind of reasoning makes the word God a lot more like a naming word, like Vicky, where it refers directly to something, allowing people to talk about the same thing while disagreeing or arguing about any descriptions of God. And if that's true, then we open the path for arguments that Christians and Muslims do worship the same God.
0: For Muslims, there's no doubt that the God that we, and I say this as someone who's who's a Muslim as well as a scholar of Islam, that there's no doubt for Muslims that the God that we worship is the God that Christians and Jews worship. The Quran is explicit in saying that this God that Muhammad is preaching about is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So for Muslims, there's no issue there. The Quran makes no sense unless you know the Bible. You know, the Quran presumes that the hearers who are hearing these stories for the first time know some of these stories, know who these people are. You know, it doesn't say, okay, the first created human being was Adam, and Adam and Eve had two sons. It's gonna tell you what it thinks is the real meaning of that story, but it's not reintroducing these characters or introducing these characters. Jesus isn't a figure in the Jewish tradition. Jesus, by contrast, is a very important figure for Muslims. First off, the Quran says that Jesus was born of Mary, who's a virgin, Uh, except that for Muslims, this doesn't make Jesus divine. This makes Jesus extraordinary. Mashiach in Hebrew is Masihiyah in Arabic. A dozen times in the Quran, Jesus is called the Messiah. And if you ask Muslims who's the Messiah, they'll say, well, that's Jesus, because that's his title in the Quran.
1: Christianity and Islam share the same creation story. They share the same prophetic history up through Jesus. They share the same story of the origin of Jesus as being from a virgin birth through Mary, another very important character in Islam. Jesus performed miracles and was the anointed one of God, or the Messiah. They disagree with Christians about the divinity of Jesus. Interestingly, Muslims share similar end-time mythologies about Jesus as well.
0: This final judgment, this day of resurrection, what will that look like? And in the Muslim tradition, it's kind of interesting because it's a similar story to the story that most Christians have, that there will be this kind of conflict between good and evil. Christians will talk about you know, Jesus and the antichrist, the devil, whoever, you know, kind of thing. Muslims, a similar sort of story that what will usher in this age, well, it's the return of Jesus who will battle the forces of evil.
1: Amir Hussein, his book is Oil and Water, Two Faiths, One God. Paul Griffith summarized for me the important similarities between Christianity and Islam.
7: The Lord is one. There is just one of them. There's not multiple gods. No, neither side thinks this. The Lord is the creator of all that is. So you've got two categories that in play, either the Lord or creatures. That accounts for everything. There's nothing else. They agree also that human persons have a special intimacy with the lord and that flows out into some fairly deep ethical commonalities because there are certain things you just don't do to or with people who are related to the lord in that peculiarly intimate way muslims and christians in a deep way agree that the primary loyalty of their believers or adherents cannot be to any nation-state, or any political entity of a secular sort. And that's really quite important and interesting, I think, because part of what we're seeing now with certain kinds of Islam, I think, is exactly a deep, principled, and often very violent, rejection of the claims to primacy of the nation-state.
1: And that's shared by Christianity in deep ways, too. The case that Christians and Muslims worship the same God relies on the fact that that the words for god in each religion either describe something compatible like the descriptions the one and only deity or the words are naming words in their own right allowing christians and muslims to refer to god directly with their speech like when i use the word vicky to talk about the vase from there The shared history of prophets and God's revelations in their religious texts, right up to and including Jesus, make the case that both religions refer to the same God while having fundamental disagreements about who God is and what God is like. On the other hand, the case that Christians and Muslims do not worship the same God takes very seriously that God must be a describing word which describes central aspects of a religion's particular characterizations of God and salvation. I'm too much of an outsider to form a really definitive opinion about these particular arguments. But I did come away with one observation. I did not meet any Christians, or any Muslims, who have claimed that Muslims and Christians are talking about two different people named Jesus both of whom were birthed by a virgin named Mary, but one who was the divine incarnation of God, the other who was a prophet who was anointed by God to deliver the Gospels. Christians and Muslims disagree about Jesus, but that just means they're talking about the same Jesus. To a secular outsider like me, I have to ask, aren't these disagreements about Jesus just the same disagreements about God? If so, aren't they talking about the same God in the same way as they're talking about the same Jesus? It was February, one month after termination proceedings were initiated against Larisha Hawkins.
3: I got an email with two of my friends who wore the hijab with me on the flights home. And we got an email from the provost apologizing. And we are like, wow, this, this is good, you know? like. And that was a big turning point, I think, for campus. Wheaton College did have some fault in that, in, in those decisions. And it was really exciting for us because we thought, okay, this means she could come back. And then a few hours later, we got the email of, a reconciliation service, and that Dr. Hawkins wasn't coming back. And that was really, really hard. I think for almost everyone, just very confusing, of just saying, like, okay, why won't she come back? To at least a lot of the people that were protesting, it was like, why does this need to happen? And so Dr. Hawkins emailed us the day before. We all wore black and sat
5: in the front, there was this kind of language that was used of, yeah, we're reconciling. We're walking away from each other and not yelling at each other, so we're reconciling. That was offensive. To, to call that reconciliation was offensive. Students boycotted it, and faculty did as well, some. and It was not the healing that certainly should have happened if there truly was reconciliation. There was still secrecy.
3: None of us really knew what was going on. With her, you know, if she wanted to be standing there, if she didn't want to, like we were just trying to support her. That was a really intense moment of when she finally went up to talk.
5: Larisha came and gave an amazing message at that reconciliation service about the getting out of the bubble in order to serve Christ.
3: All of us students stood up and she looked at us for a long time and a lot of us, you know, were teared up and she was tearing up. And she said, you honor
1: me. Larisha Hawkins and Wheaton College officially parted ways without any public statements of fault or judgment and without any resolution to the theological conflict that sparked the controversy. Larisha got a visiting research fellowship at the University of Virginia. Michael Mangus, who was already on phased retirement for health reasons, requested to return to Wheaton to teach, and he was turned down. Provost Stanton Jones stepped down from the provost position and returned to his professorship at Wheaton. Carly Bothman is finishing her senior year now.
3: I think for me, seeing so much hate from evangelicals was really hard. How can this be the church? It's definitely developed my faith. I mean, the whole semester, I think I had the most powerful times of prayer. This doesn't make sense. This isn't right. And being so close to an event like that, that was just really unjust, was really hard and really intense
4: it's been traumatic the whole experience was traumatic to be quite honest it's taken a toll on my body on my emotions i would say on relationships just because it has to just because it's testing and trying it's strengthened and improved relationships but also there's this time where i just can't be there for my friends in the way i wish i could i am forever now linked to the muslim community not just nationally but internationally and i was in turkey this summer and it was an overwhelming experience when people found out and i'm talking about mostly syrian refugees in turkey their response was wow you would do that to stand with us
5: i'm no longer willing to call myself an evangelical the culture has just become too toxic and is Ignoring too many important things for the kingdom, I can't. I don't want to be associated with that anymore. I've been in the evangelical community all my life, and evangelical theology, I don't have, but don't have difficulties with. But I'm kind of reevaluating even that as I kind of take some space now away from the toxic nature of that culture. I feel some freedom. I feel more of a sense that I I can think without fear of my thoughts offending someone you know, being scrutinized. So I do feel some emotional freedom having kind of gotten out of that atmosphere.
1: The big question was whether Christians and Muslims worship the same God, and there've been a lot of discussions about it. What do you think about that question through all this?
5: Well, at that time, I I was contacted by uh, some men at the local mosque. I got together with them for coffee one evening, just wanted to make some new friends, and we had a really nice chat, and one of the men said, do you think we worship the same God? And I said, well, I worship the God of Abraham, as he revealed himself through Jesus Christ. And one of the men said, then we're brothers. In fact, they invited me to prayer later with them.
1: Since I first reported this story two years ago, Larisha Hawkins has extended her contract and continues to teach at the University of Virginia. A documentary film about the events at Wheaton is out now. It's called Same God and has a website SameGodFilm.com. Back in New Zealand, Dr. Thaya Ashman's headscarf for Harmony was just the beginning. It is the hopeful beginning that mostly white and Christian New Zealand is going to better connect with their Muslim neighbors.
2: There were lots of people who didn't wear a headscarf as well, and that's okay. Really, whether or not people wore a headscarf or not, the deeper thing here is the ongoing relationship. How would
1: you characterize... Muslim, non-Muslim relations in New Zealand?
2: Up till now, those relationships have really not actively been sought. There's support, there's respect, but possibly not the depth of relationship. And what's unfolded through this tragedy is an active posturing of non-Muslims towards the Muslim community. Many non-Muslims have gone and visited mosques. They've gone and spoken at mosques. They've spoken with the Islamic community. We're now recognizing, you know, the complexity of the problems that we in New Zealand face of a diverse society.
1: Have you gotten a lot of pushback?
2: Well, this week I've lived in an echo chamber of criticism. (laughs) You know, I welcome it. I welcome the criticism. It, it's good. It means that people are engaging. It mean, means that people are upholding other people's rights.
1: Well, thank you very much. I'm not going to keep you any further. Thank you for talking to me. I really appreciate it.
2: Oh, that's okay, Barry. Um, I hope that was all right. It was great. It was great. Hi-Fi Nation is written, produced, and edited by Barry Lamb, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Vassar College. For Slate Podcasts. Editorial Director is Gabriel Roth. Senior Managing Producer is June Thomas. Senior Producer is TJ Raphael. Production assistance this season provided by Jake Johnson and Noah mendoza Goot. Visit hifination.org for complete show notes, soundtrack, and reading list for every episode. That's h-i-p-h-i-nation.org. And
1: thanks to all our Patreon supporters, especially Emily Ballistrieri, Eris Batt, Connor Shea. Eileen Chow, James Cropcho, Jonathan Gourette, Kelsey Hansen, Lori Dombeck, Nancy Bauer, Nathan Tauger, Pamela O'Neill, Rick Grush, and Shin Matigue. You too can be a Patreon supporter of this show by going to hifination.org. You can also sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hifiplus. You can get an ad-free feed for this and every other Slate podcasts and bonus content. New episode out in two weeks and then every
6: two weeks after that. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.